Quaker.com. My name is Ben Stone. Today is podcast number 181, and it's Friday, August 3rd, 2012. And we are in August now, and so I want to give another reminder today that on August 18th, there's an event coming up in Washington, D.C. I'll read the little, uh, the little blip, blipvert here about it. Join the Raw Milk Freedom Riders and Lemonade Freedom Day for a picnic in celebration of our freedom of voluntary exchange for the foods of our choice. Uh, Saturday, August 18th, 2012 at noon. This is happening 3rd Street, southwest between Maryland and Jefferson, near the Capitol Reflecting Pool in Washington, D.C. And if you can, get out there, you know, bring a picnic basket, a picnic lunch or something, something to share. Uh, you know, maybe just a bucket of chicken or something. Whatever you whatever you can grab and bring out to share and uh, have a good time. Be sure and take a camera in case any of the uh, the author the so-called authorities decide to want to make a fuss about it. You you want to be sure and catch that on camera. Um, before I get into the real topic today, I wanted to just touch on a news item. I I usually try not to do news, but this one just struck me so odd that that uh, I had to mention it. There's uh, some individuals that are trying to patent a steak. They're trying to get a patent on a steak. This is a cut of meat that they want to patent. They want to patent a cut of meat. It's called the Las Vegas Strip Steak. Now, I'm talking about patenting, not just copywriting the name. They already own the copyright on the name. They actually want to patent the cut of meat. Now... Uh, I'm not going to make a big deal on intellectual property today, but, you know, here's the funny part. They're, they're attempting to keep it a secret as to exactly how that they cut this section of meat from a beef. Even in the patent, they don't want to reveal their trade secrets in the patent because, why is that? Because, because it's not in, it's not really enforceable. You see... It doesn't matter that they're attempting to use government aggression to to maintain their advantage in the market. That that's beside the point. Uh, what's really important here is that they still, even with the government aggression, they're still going to have to keep it a trade secret. Otherwise, butchers will just cut it and not sit, not call it a Vegas Strip. They'll just cut it and call it, you know, something else. And and. It's it's like pirating, you know, mu- it's like pirating music a few years back where the government decides, uh, you know, certain individuals in the industry decide, "Oh, we can't have this." So they start using government aggression to try to shut down the 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 sharing industry, uh, the sharing business that's that was blooming. And you can't. It's like it's like uh, you know, trying to grip water. It's like trying to get a fistful of water. You just the more you 
clamp down on it, the more it squirts out, and you don't have it when you when you look for it. So really, how are they going to protect their precious uh, intellectual property here on this information on how to cut this this patented steak? Well, they're going to have to maintain a trade secret, and if they're maintaining a trade secret, because the government cannot ensure that this is, you know, even if they write it into the patent and do everything they're supposed to do, do to get the patent done and the government approves of this and the government agrees to use aggression to, to inflict this patent, to enforce this patent, even if they do all those things, it won't stop people from just cutting the meat that way anyway. So what are they, what's the functional thing that they have to do? They have to keep a trade secret. Well, you know what? They could t- keep a trade secret even without government aggression. You just do it. Trade secrets uh, have been kept in all kinds of different industries throughout time. Uh, but, you know, that's, people are conditioned to go immediately and use the government aggression to accomplish what they want. So anyway, I said I wasn't going to go off on intellectual property. I spent a couple minutes on that, and that's it. What I want to talk to you about today is kind of an overview of BadQuaker.com, what we do, our our way of thinking, and maybe what sets us apart from some other uh, podcasts that are on the air right now. Um, I I have done this before, and oftentimes I get off on um, details about you know, who I am and where I've come from in my life and things like that. I'm going to try not to do that today. I'm trying, I'm going to try to go strictly with my notes and just go through a basic overview of how, um, uh, how we, and I'm saying we, I'm saying basically the staff here at badquaker.com, the, the five or six people that, uh, we all function together and kind of do all the little things that need to be done for there to be a a badquaker.com. So I'm I'm going to kind of give an overview of how we look at the world, sort of a, you know, uh, the, the the world according to BadQuaker.com in 60 minutes. So uh, maybe I'll be able to accomplish that. Okay, so now the first thing uh, that I want to talk about, the, the very first thing that I want to uh, bring to the table here is truth, a testimony of truth. And I've got many of the things that I'm about to say. I've gone over and over and over. Uh, oftentimes, they're in different podcasts, so they're not they're not all in one place. So if you just heard this same thing last week or or day before yesterday or whatever, just stick with me because I'm just I'm going to be moving through many of these different things. So the testimony of truth. Now I've talked before about this. Um, I was my whole family. I was raised as a Baptist, and I have nothing against the Baptist. You know that that's their thing and whatever. But I was raised as a Baptist, and as an adult, I re- I came to the realization that I was a Quaker. And there are caveats to that. There are exceptions. I don't, you know, I don't attend Quaker meetings. I don't follow all the Quaker um, things that they follow, such as I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I believe in self-defense, and there are some other things as well. But I'm I'm not going to make a big deal about that today. But what I wanted to point out was one of the differences between the Baptist way of thinking and the Quaker way of thinking when it comes to testimony. And I've used this ex- example before. The Baptist, uh, if, you're, if you're in a Baptist church and you're talking to Baptists and you say something about a testimony, what pops into their mind is this, um, this procedure that happens in a, pa- in a Baptist meeting where a person will, generally this is, there will be a time set aside to do this during a meeting, but a person will stand up and they will, using the, 
the Baptist terminology, they will give a testimony. In other words, they will say, um, I love God because of this and that, or God has done wonderful things for me because of this and that, or these things were happening in my life, and now it's like this, and everything's better, or um, maybe they'll want to say, you know, I'm having trouble in this area of my life, and if, uh, you know, if the folks in the church can help me get through this or pray for me or whatever. This is the testimony of a Baptist. It's standing up in front of the congregation and speaking words. That's basically it in a nutshell. But the Quaker looks at a testimony in a, in a totally different way. So, for example, for a Quaker to have a testimony, let, let's say I'm talking about truth here. So for a, test, for a Quaker to have a testimony of truth, that means on a day-to-day basis, as that individual Quaker lives their life, they live according to truth. They, they do not lie. They avoid all possibilities of lies. They do everything within their power, within their the you know within the limited powers of a human. They do everything possible to live uh, truth and not not deceive, not lie. This is the difference in the testimony of the you know in, in concept anyway. And there are good Baptists, and there are good Quakers, and there are bad 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 Baptists, and there are bad Quakers. So this is not a an off, uh, this is not a condemnation of anyone, and it's not a, a praise of anyone. It's just talking about two different ways of looking at this word testimony. So in other words, what I'm trying to say is the, the, the Baptist way is to talk about the testimony, but the Quaker way is the practical out, outworkings of that testimony. It's the difference between your talk and your walk, so to speak. Now, uh, an example of this I'm going to throw out, and Hopefully this will be the only time I actually single out anybody and pick on them in this particular podcast. But uh, not long ago, there was an interview that Bob Wenzel did with Gary Johnson. And uh, regular listeners of mine know that I, I jumped on that pretty quick because Gary Johnson really messed up the interview. A lot of people said Bob Wenzel set him up or whatever, but those people who say that are generally Gary Johnson supporters and are generally not acquainted with Bob Wenzel and his typical style of speech. I don't believe in any way that Bob was trying to set up Gary Johnson. I think he was giving Gary every opportunity to clarify the things that he was saying, and I believe he was giving Gary uh, Johnson every opportunity to, to talk his way out of, the, out of the mess that Gary Johnson had put himself into. But essentially what happened when Bob asked Gary Johnson a couple of simple, basic questions that one would often ask a libertarian, uh, Gary Johnson's knee-jerk reaction was to lie. Then he tried to sort of wiggle his way out of it, and then I'm told later on, and I didn't follow through on this because I really have no interest in Gary Johnson at this point, but I'm told later on Gary Johnson attempted to amend his uh, his folly and uh, Bob Wenzel was a polite gentleman about it and, and acknowledged uh, Gary Johnson's um, statement or whatever. But it really doesn't matter. The real point is that when, when the rubber hit the road, Gary Johnson's knee-jerk reaction was to lie. Now, that's not necessarily a complete condemnation of G- Gary Johnson. A lot of people do that, especially, you know, lifetime politicians like Gary Johnson. And I want to I want to make clear too. There's a huge difference between intentionally lying 
and just being mistaken or confused about a topic. Anybody can be confused about a topic and not have all the facts in or just, you know, see it through, uh, through a confusing set of eyes or whatever. So, so you know, uh, there's, a, there's a clear difference between intentionally lying and just being mistaken. So um, now when you think about a knee-jerk reaction like that, I, I was told a long time ago by a guy that I had a lot of respect for that um, you can learn a lot of man you can learn a lot about a man uh, when he hits his thumb with a hammer and what he meant by that is that whatever is inside of you uh, take take the thumb for an example you smack a thumb with a hammer and something squirts out you know we're assuming you hit it hard enough what squirts out is blood and um, and it's very you know ouch but here's the real thing you hit your thumb with a hammer and often something else will spew out of you. It typically spews out of your mouth. And it might be uh, anger. It might be uh, agony. It might be, you know, um, it, it might be a, a long string of words that you wouldn't normally say. Or uh, maybe it's words that you say all the time. But here's the real thing. In a situation like that, where you whack yourself with a hammer... What spews out of you is what's inside of you. And that was what the guy told me all those years ago. When you hit your thumb with a hammer, what's inside of you is what spews outside of you. I had the opportunity once. I was in uh, the living room of our home, and I had our three children. They were all very small children at the time. I think the oldest uh, at that time was, oh, I think he was about maybe... 10 or 12 and so the youngest was probably um, you know two or three something like that I might be a little off on my numbers but um, but they all the kids were there all three of the kids were there in the living room and I was in the living room doing some uh, you know uh, around the house type work and I was working with a uh, power drill with a brand new drill bit and I was um, drilling something and, and my wife was there, and my hand slipped, and the drill slipped. The drill was going full speed, and I had a lot of pr down pressure on the drill. And the drill shot away from the material that I was trying to drill. It was very hard, very hard steel. And, I was, uh, and, it, and the drill slipped, and the drill bit drove into my thigh, the entire length of the bit. So we're talking about three inches that the drill bit went into my thigh. And uh, my reaction to that was immediately to freeze. I, I let go of the trigger of the drill as the drill was sliding away, but the drill was still spinning as it impacted and it sort of just screwed itself right into my leg. So I literally, I, I couldn't just pull the drill out because it didn't, it didn't drill a hole into my leg. It uh, it it screwed itself into my leg, so I had to turn the drill backwards and slowly pull as I pulled the drill out of my out of my thigh. It was uh, quite uncomfortable, and at the same time, the last thing I wanted to do was panic my family. So as I'm doing this, and as I get the drill out, I had to immediately hold direct pressure because it was really wanting to, uh, to let go of some blood there. 
and calmly put the drill down and get myself to the bathroom so that I could deal with the situation. The last thing I wanted to do was panic my family and have them screaming and, and you know, thinking that you know, something horrible had happened. So now, uh, what happened when the thumb, when, when the hammer hit my thumb? Well, or in this case, the drill went into my leg. Well, what, what's inside came out. And what's inside, uh, what I have strove my life to develop inside is a calmness. So that when an emergency happens, I can calmly deal with the emergency and not be swept away with emotion. And it's not that I was tough or it's not that I'm, you know, I'm some superhuman or anything like that. I've been hurt a lot. I've had a lot of injuries. And so when the drill went into my leg, what spurted out, what came out was my initial reaction of calmness. I carefully removed the drill controlled the bleeding and got out of the room now that's not to say it didn't hurt and that's not to say i'm superhuman and can overcome pain and you know no it's just that it was more important to me to control the situation and not panic my family than it was to uh to you know to make a big deal about it and so my my point in that is that when a situation happens that is so dramatic like the the, the hammer hitting the thumb. What spurts out is really what's in the depths, what's inside of you. And so when something happens like what happened with Gary Johnson and his initial reaction is to lie, it's because that lie is deep inside of him. If that's his go-to. Right there, that's the go-to thing that he has. Rather than being calm and examining it and saying, oh, you know, you know, Bob, I really don't know anything about economics. I've done these wonderful things as governor. I've, I've done this and this and this. Instead of going to truth, Gary Johnson's initial reaction was to go to a lie. That was, that was what was deep inside of him. Now, when, when we speak the truth, when we, on a day-to-day -day basis, when we embed truth deep into us as part of our being, it creates a certain level of trust uh, with other people who interact with us on a daily basis. When I, when I worked in the aerospace industry, one of my strengths and yet one of my weaknesses was my uh, almost radical f uh, uh, adoption of truth. If, if I had done something stupid, which I often do stupid things, if I had done something stupid, I had no problem at all um, going to my boss and saying, look, I just did this stupid thing and it's going to cost us a lot of money and we need to figure out what we can do to overcome this. And, and by not covering my mistakes, by not trying to use deception or not trying to uh, portray myself as having knowledge of something that I really didn't have, uh, by, ad by adopting this, this fanatical view of the truth, it, it developed a level of trust in me that both the people... Uh, you know, that, that were working for me, and the, per, the people that were working on a peer level with me, and the, those working in positions higher than me. All of those people knew that, that, that the truth would always be what came out of me, even at my own harm. Even if, even if the truth is going to harm me, then I would still adhere to that truth. And that is a testimony of truth having people be able to trust you like that, having truth supersede any belief system you might have, any self-defense mechanism you might have, 
is uh, that is a testimony of truth. Um, folks, right now, I'm going to break for a commercial. When I come back, we're going to pick back up on this again. Hang on. I'll be right back. Folks, I want to talk to you about survival gear bags. Survival gear bags is about more than just great gear bags and survival kits. Check out their website by clicking the banner at badquaker.com. Survival Gear Bags has everything from wise food storage products to tactical equipment to camping supplies to clothing and rain gear to hydration and purification systems to books and DVDs. Plus, Survival Gear Bags is known for its service, and it's owned and operated by people who understand and adhere to the zero aggression principle. So get over to Survival Gear Bags and get the stuff you need. Okay, thanks for sticking with me. Um, So I was talking about the truth, and I said that um, truth develops trust. If people know you as being a person of truth, they'll have far more trust for you. Uh, they'll have more, far more trust in you than if they're not sure. Or if sometimes you lie to them or sometimes you get caught up in you know, trying to uh, support uh, some image of yourself that's not true. People will put a far more trust in you if they know um, that truth is always what comes out of you. And again, truth should supersede any belief system you have. So, like I was talking to someone yesterday, and I said, well, you know, I, uh, and the question was in reference to theology and so forth, and I said, well, I, I do, I do believe in some kind of a God, um, I, and I have specific beliefs about that, but I can't prove that, and I can't disprove it. So anything that I, anything that I grasp as truth has to, has to be greater than any belief system that I have. It has to supersede any belief system. So, so in other words, let's say gravity. Okay, gravity works whether I believe in God or whether I believe in evolution or whether I believe in, uh, whether I don't believe in God and I'm a complete atheist or maybe I'm agnostic or I'm, you know, it, it doesn't matter. Gravity still works. And so if I have a belief system that says that there's no such thing as gravity, or gravity is part-time, or gravity, uh, you know, can be overcome by rubbing two sticks together or something, then, then I need to throw aside that belief system because it doesn't fit truth. And so, so my first thought in anything when I'm examining it, examining it, it, is, it cannot be, does this fit my belief system? It has to be, is this the truth? And then bump it up against my belief system. Does my belief system adhere to this? If not, I have to be willing to adjust my belief system because truth doesn't adjust. So the more I can discover of real truth, then the finer I can adjust my belief system. But at any point, I have to be willing to set aside my beliefs if they don't meet the truth. Uh, Now, one of the things that I have observed as truth is that animals behave according to laws that are hardwired into their brains. You just never see, you you know, you, you just never see a squirrel trying to hover in the air over a flower and lick nectar from inside the flower because a squirrel is not a hummingbird and a squirrel cannot behave like a hummingbird. And oddly enough, you never see hummingbirds trying to fly around with little with a nut in their little tiny feet trying to hide it somewhere. You just don't see hummingbirds doing that. And the reason why is because it, it's not, there's nothing in their nature to create that kind of behavior. Their behavior 
is instinctual to them. I talk all the time about the butterflies. You know, there are types of butterfly that uh, that leave the jungles in Mexico and they fly all the way across North America, north to south, south to north, actually, and they and they land in places in Canada. And they spend time there, and then as part of their migration, they turn around and go all the way back to Canada. I'm sorry, all the way back to Mexico. So here we have a butterfly, and this is not learned behavior, because one butterfly, the, the, the system you know, of, of going through the metamorphosis and everything that a, that a caterpillar to a butterfly and all this, no butterfly has a parent to teach it this behavior. The butterfly knows instinctually to leave where, where, where it was born, and go all the way to another land like that through such a distance and then find a place where it can eat and mate and do all the things it has to do and then fly all the way back to the place where it was born. And that all is hardwired into that butterfly. Now, if a butterfly has that kind of instinctual abilities, then why would we think that humans don't have instinctual uh, things hardwired into our brain as well? You see, animals, uh, if they don't have those things hardwired into their brain, then they don't survive because each species is so unique to its own, to the laws that regulate that species. Um, any, uh, any variance from those laws that are unique to that species will either wipe out the individual animal that's breaking those laws, or if the whole species begins breaking those laws that are naturally hardwired into the brain, then the whole, then the whole species will go extinct. Uh, anytime animals behave outside of their natural laws, they either die or go extinct. Getting back to the message here that badquaker.com is trying to get across. Well, no, let me go in this direction. Let's have a definition. I haven't done, I don't think I've done a definition in a while. Let me, I'll just give a definition of, the. well, I'll, I'll talk about the difference between the state, government, and leadership. And I'll try to make this really brief. The problem with the words state, government, and leadership, all languages are limited and all languages have flaws. And, and understanding languages, uh, the whole process of communicating through words is very flawed. If you think about how many times you've been on the internet uh, in a, some kind of like a chat room or on Facebook or on a, in a, a forum thread or anything like that where uh, email, where the exchange is strictly text. In a situation like that, complex, complex thoughts are very difficult to express to another person using just text. And that's the problem with language is that when we have words like state, government, and leadership, we're limited. The, these, these words are very, very lacking in their ability to exchange information. So for that reason, the, the word state can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So uh, at badquaker.com, as much as possible, we try to use this definition for state, government, and leadership. State is a, th well, no, let me go this way, government. Government is um, the people, uh, like judges and, and um, the lawyers that are employed by the state, and uh, trashmen that are employed by the state, and you know policemen that are employed by the state, and military that's employed by the state, and, uh, well, I'm saying the state each time. I should be saying government. 
<laughs> see, I'm messing up my own process here. Uh, employed by the government. All these people who uh, work for what we perceive as the government, uh, including all the buildings that are called government buildings, the statues of great government people, and you know the all the the manifestations of government that we see, the visible stuff that we see, we consider that stuff government. The workers, the elected officials, the judges, all those people are government. They're all employed. Uh, by this entity that we talk about as government. Now, the, the difference between that and the state is we talk about here at badquaker.com, the state is that belief in your mind that that government is legitimate. Now, uh, keep in mind that government, the way that we know it today, the way that it exists everywhere in the world today, government is based on stealing from some people and giving to other people and it's based on rules that are inflicted down upon some people, but other people don't have to obey those rules. So, for example, I've used the excuse before. You say, okay, you put on a costume. Let's say you put on a Batman costume, and you've got all the whole Batman costume that you're wearing. And you walk down the street and you see someone doing something that, that you think is not good. Uh, and so you whip off of your Batman utility belt, you whip off a, a Batman pepper spray, and you, you command that citizen, citizen, stop doing that terrible thing you're doing. And he's like, go away, weirdo in your Batman costume. And so you spray that citizen with your Batman pepper spray. Now, at some point in time, if you walk around doing this enough, somebody's going to beat you senseless, or they're going to kill you, or they're going to drag you off by your heels, or something really nasty is going to happen to you, because people won't tolerate that. On the other hand, if you put on a slightly different costume, one issued by the government with a little shiny badge, and a cute little hat, and a nightstick, and you wear this other costume, and you walk around and you can behave the exact same way, and people will think what you're doing is good. Now that difference in the mind between somebody saying, the weirdo in the Batman costume is nuts. He's going around spraying people with mace and trying to force them to obey his rules. And that policeman is doing his duty. He's keeping us civilized. You see, that thing in your mind that makes you think the two different ways about the two different men in costume, that's the state. That, that weird, unsupportable myth in your brain that tells you that there are some people in the world who, who can go around and act in a way that no one else can, and that's okay. Or that some people in the world can make laws, and other people have to obey those laws. That belief system, that myth, that's the state in, in badquaker.com terms. Leadership, on the other hand, Leadership, uh, you get 20 people together for any reason, and leadership will be there. Leadership is a natural thing that occurs uh, almost every time uh, more than one person get together. There's some kind of leadership that takes place in almost every situation. And leadership is an entirely natural process. When leadership becomes, and leadership is voluntary, by the way, that's one of its characteristics. Leadership is true. Leadership is always voluntary. But when leadership becomes government, as long as it's voluntary, then it's legitimate. 
But the second that government becomes mandatory, then you've adopted this mythology of the state, and government is no longer uh, legitimate. It's, it's now become uh, tyrannical. Acceptance of the state is an unnatural condition for human beings. Remember I talked about uh, a natural, uh, the natural laws that govern each species? Well, human beings have, have natural laws hardwired into our brains. The problem is we, to a large extent, our entire species has, over thousands of years, systematically washed those natural, uh, those natural laws. We've washed them out. And we have instilled upon our children the idea that accepting the state as legitimate is good and rebelling against the state is bad. And, and this is the opposite. This is contrary to human nature. nature. And, the, and really and truly the state is new to our species. It's new and it's harmful to our species. It's harmful in a short term in the sense that due to the fact that the state exists because, uh, because of this myth in the mind and it creates a situation where people are dominating other people and stealing from other people and living off of other people in a parasitic way. In that sense, uh, the, this belief in the state is harmful in the short term, but it's also destructive to our species in the long term. And the reason why is because it by the very fact that it is against nat against nature the the existence of the state is against nature there's nothing in nature that would that would be a, a natural law that would say that one group of humans can dominate another group of humans like that that's that's a very unnatural condition so as long as we hold to this myth of the state we're adopting something that's destructive to us individually on a short term and it's destructive to our species on a long-term basis. You think of any particular species that is under the threat of going extinct, and there's something wrong with that species that it hasn't adapted to a situation, or the you know there's been an environmental change, or something. Um, there, there's something in the situation that that species either can't adapt to or has adapted into a dead end. Uh, think of the pandas. You know, pandas have adapted to the point of where the amount of food that's available for them is very limited. And if they can't, if they can't get that particular kind of food, then they can't adapt away from it and to some other kind of food. So they're doomed. I mean, they, you know, unless humans just manage them uh, on a continual basis, uh, all it takes is the loss of that one food item, and they're gone. Well, it's a very dangerous person, a very dangerous position for species to be in. And accepting the state is exactly that condition for human beings. It's putting us into a position where we're in danger of extinction. If you think about, think about the power that the state has, uh, think about how the state has developed the weapons, you know, the, the old thing that they always talk about, weapons of mass destruction. Well, yeah, but none of those things would ever be developed under natural circumstances uh, without the state. The state, uh, the one thing that it can develop is ways to murder humans. That's the one thing that the state is really good at figuring out and, and bringing upon people. So if it weren't for these state-based governments, there would be no weapons that can wipe out whole populations at once. So having these kind of weapons is unnatural to us. 
and is a very much a long-term threat to our existence. And here's another aspect of what we talk about at badquaker.com. Something happened to our species on a wide scale to cause this unbalance. Now, for back for uh, again back to talking about the, you know, the communication in words, for lack of a better word, I refer to this to this imbalance as sin. Now, I'm not that's not necessarily a proper religious use of the word, but I I refer to any time that humans take it upon themselves to make law for other humans and try to inflict their opinion, their laws on other humans, I consider that sin. I consider any time that one human aggresses upon another human, I consider that sin. And at some point, and, and and it's contrary to human nature. In the vast majority of times human intera- humans interact with each other, we do not aggress upon one another. We do not try to inflict our will upon the other. The vast majority of the time that humans interact with each other, we do so in honesty, we do so in trade, we do so peaceably. But when, when, you, when you put aggression into it, you have to have some justification for it. And the justification for aggression is the myth of the state. So the introduction of the myth of the state, which is fairly recent to humans in the last 10, 12,000 years, that caused a species-wide imbalance upon us, and it's threatening the entire species. So then, if the species is to survive, individuals must become aware of the myth of the state and, and see it for what it really is then as we all together, as we, see, well, as we see it individually and as we see it together, and we begin rejecting this myth of the state, we increase the opportunity for our species to, to continue. But if, but if nobody points it out, if nobody sees it, if we just keep the same road of believing this myth, then if you just think through the logical conclusion of this, we're talking about, you know, an increase in wars and increase in things like, you know, uh, genetically modified foods and all the weird things that the state produces until the point of where it becomes no longer, you know, we, we have the potential, humans have the potential of wiping out all life on the planet. That is definitely not a natural occurrence. You don't see, you don't see ants doing that to the planet. I'm going to go ahead and break again, and when I come back, I'm going to take this a little further and see if we can wrap it all up. Folks, have you seen the silver and gold trading cards from Shire Silver? You have to check these out. They're specific weights of real silver or gold laminated inside trading cards, and they're a great way to show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. And now you can buy them using bitcoins or Federal Reserve notes. Folks, you really need to check this out. Go over to Shire Silver, watch the video on the main page, check out the list of merchants that accept silver and gold trading cards, and you can even learn how you can get paid to help spread the word about Shire Silver trading cards. Okay, and I'm back again. Now, to wrap this up, again, we just have to, as individuals and, uh, and all of us as a species, well, not every single person, but the species in general, we have to come to grips with this myth of the state and see it for what it really is. And on an individual basis and on a species basis, we have to reject the state. Now, here's a slightly, 
here's a slightly different thing to think about. When we dedicate our lives or our labor or when we just when we assist the state through our lives and our labor when we assist the state in improving the condition of the state making it more palatable uh, making making the aggression of the state more uh, more more you know less offensive less uh, when we do this when we add our effort into this myth of the state to make it more acceptable the state since the state itself is based on you know aggression uh, lies theft when we do anything to make the state more palatable we're actually um, we we ourselves are actually aggressing upon humanity we're bringing that aggression of the state we're making that aggression more acceptable and therefore we're promoting that ag- aggression and since a belief in the state is the actual justification for aggression of some people upon others anything that we do to facilitate the state actually perpetuates that aggression so if you can imagine it it's kinda like um, okay so here's the state and he's got this uh, you know he's got this mask on to, to mask his true nature and anything we do to uh, like okay so here we are tucking the fangs behind the mask so that nobody can see the fangs and so the mask is more uh, more pleasing to lose to look at so what we're actually doing is we're false we're, we're making it easier for the state to accomplish its task of fooling people into believing that it's good because we're tucking the fangs behind the mask tucking the fangs of the state behind the mask uh, you know I've used before the example um, talking about Ron Paul, Ron Paul had he done everything that he said he wanted to do and everything that everybody hoped and prayed that he would do, he would have gone in as president of the United States and he would have, um, you know, fixed the budget of the government. He would have cut out uh, huge swaths of the government that do nothing but, uh, you know, but destroy wealth. He would have done these things. And had he done those things, he would have actually made the the United States government more uh, more lean, more functional. And see, that's a bad thing. That that is perpetuating this myth of the state as being good. It's putting it's putting off the inevitable collapse of the of that federal government, making it more palatable, more tolerable, and um, and actually working to help the state rather than expose the state. Uh, using the the example that I've used oftentimes, if you're standing there in an alleyway and a thief is in front of you uh, with a pistol and he's holding the pistol on you and he's telling you to give him give give you give him your money, and um, you're not moving fast enough and he pulls the trigger on the pistol and the pistol jams, and if you were to say hold on hold on let me see that and take his pistol and fix it for him and hand it back to him so that you can facilitate his robbing of you. Well, that's kind of what it's like to help the government and help help make the government work better and get the government more palatable and more acceptable and lower taxes and make the government do, you know, less evil monstrous things. Um, if you can another a different way. Oh, here's a good example of someone who did exactly that. Milton Freeman. Milton Freeman, a lot of uh, libertarians just fall all over themselves talking about how great Milton Freeman was. But, of course, you know, he wasn't. Uh, One of the main things that Milton Freeman did, uh, he introduced to the government the concept of withholding tax. That was his baby. That was the thing that really got him on the map. 
he he gave the government this concept of the withholding tax. And what the withholding tax did, it it made it so that uh, the employers withheld small amounts of the tax each week or each month or whatever as you got your pay. Um, your, your income tax was held out in small amounts like that over the course of the year so that you never felt the whole sting of the whole thing at once. And then at the end of the year, if everything is done like it's like they want you to do it, then you get a little check back from the government that we're all supposed to feel warm and fuzzy about. So saying it in a different way, the government's going to rob from you every week over the course of the year, except they rob more than they intend to. So at the end of the year, they give you a little bit of it back. And that's uh, the, how, that's how the government um, is able to con people into giving them so much of their wealth because it's palatable. It doesn't sting so much. If you had to pay all your, uh, all your whole year's taxes in one day, sit down and write out a check to the government. Or if the government actually sent a guy to your house to knock on your door and collect the thing once a year or something like that, it would be intolerable. You wouldn't put up with it. But by Milton Freeman's great idea of having this spread out over the course of the year and having your employer collect the tax for the government, then all of a sudden it's palatable. You see, that's a horrible thing Milton Freeman did. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a monstrous thing he did. Think of a mosquito or think of a tick or something like that, some small little creature that comes up and it gets in a place where you're not looking and, it, and it's very careful how it approaches you. And with a tick, I believe this is the case with the mosquito, but I'm not sure. With a tick, they, they sort of salivate this substance onto your skin that sort of numbs your skin so that as they drive their head down into your flesh, you don't feel it. The tick actually chews his way down into your flesh and buries his whole, the, basically his head, it's not really like a head like a human has, but, it, but basically he buries his head into your skin and begins sucking your blood. And he's able to do that because he's numbed that little spot with his saliva before he bit you. Now think of, uh, think of a, something small like that, like a mosquito or a tick or something. And then think about something like Dracula. Dracula, you know, appears out of the darkness, grabs you, sinks his fangs into you, um, transforms you into one of the living dead. Is very dramatic. If there was a real Dracula in society, people would hunt him down and kill him. Because we wouldn't tolerate something like that. A real live Dracula, we would just, in unison, hunt him down, pitchforks, torches, and kill him. But you don't do that with ticks, do you? There's no, there's no great campaign to eradicate the world of ticks. You don't see villagers, you know, uh, waving um, pitchforks in the air, you know, go to the castle of the ticks and destroy them. You don't see that. Because ticks are just a little nuisance. Ticks are a little nuisance until you're infected and they kill you. You see... Dracula, the threat is obvious. You see this big evil thing and you recognize it. And it, But the tick is just a tiny little thing. It's just a little nuisance. And as long as the state is a nuisance, it's tolerable. And we work around it. We may not like it, but we work around it. 
But the moment that people realize the state for what it really is, for the Dracula monster that, that lives off of our life, once we realize, once humanity realizes the real nature of this monster, they won't tolerate it anymore. They'll get rid of it. So everything people do, individuals, everything individuals do that make the government and the state that backs up the government, everything they do that makes that more palatable or makes it better, let's say, uh, oh, I know, let's all get together and vote to throw out this one oppressive law because we don't want to pay... Uh, you know what we don't want to pay a tax for this particular thing so we all get together and we and we have a camp campaign and we get that one tax re reduced or thrown out or whatever see we've done this great thing right we've made the state more palatable we've made the state more tolerable that's evil we've done a bad thing we're we're putting off to another generation the evils of the state that's all we're doing we're we're allowing the narcotic of the state to numb future generations and continue to feed off of them when we do that. It's much better if we can expose the Dracula for what he really is than to, you know, than to whitewash him over and pretend that he's okay or, or, you know, trim his nails and trim his teeth and make, and, you know, make it so he doesn't hurt so bad when he bites us. So then how bad can the state get? Now there's a good question for you. How bad can the state get? Well, it will get as bad as humans let it get until it either destroys us or we destroy it. The state is the mortal enemy of humans. It is like a virus that will kill us if we tolerate it. It feeds off of us and it will destroy us if we don't do something about it. It's unnatural. It is not a part of our normal uh, development. It, it is a weird thing that's come upon us in the last 10,000 years. And if we don't get rid of it, it will kill us. We have to kill it before it kills us. And uh, how are we going to do that? Well, we have to show people the evil of the state. We cannot, you can't, I say this all the time, you can't fight the state using the weapons of the state on the, on the battleground that the state chooses. That's, it's foolish to fight anyone using the weapons they choose on the battlegrounds that they choose. You should, you should always pick the battleground, you should always pick the weapons, and you should always pick the timing of the battle. And you pick those things according to your advantages, and then that increases your odds. So how can we show people how evil this thing really is? Well, people will only demand liberty when they understand that it's being taken from them. I've, done, I've made this comparison before. Think of... Um, Think of liberty as air. When, when, you've, when you're walking around your day-to-day -day basis, you don't think about breathing. You don't think about air. It all happens automatically. But if someone was to walk up to you and throw a plastic bag over your head and cinch it tight around your throat, and all of a sudden you would realize how important air is, and you would become very violent very quickly in order to get that air back again. You would, you would react um, dramatically to get that air back because you suddenly realize how important that air is. Well, um, that's the same way with liberty. When a little bit is taken from us, we don't necessarily notice it. But at some point, if you, if, at some point people realize that their liberty is being taken and then they will do something about it. But 
as long as they can tolerate it, as long as it's palatable, they'll ignore it. Think of it this way. There's, um, if you've ever heard of oxygen deprivation, the, the governments, unfortunately, governments have done a lot of experiments on, government, on oxygen deprivation. And there's videos of these uh, floating around on the Internet if you, if you are, have the mind to go see them. But they take, typically they'll take uh, flyers or soldiers or something like this, and they'll put them in a chamber, and they'll have them do simple exercises like math, uh, writing math formulas, or they'll have them like writing their name or something like this. And while they're doing these simple little exercises, they slowly remove the oxygen from the room, from the mo- from the room, and they replace it with something like uh, some inert gas, like you know CO two or or whatever argon. I'm not sure what they what they would use, but um, probably nitrogen. And now that I think about it, they would probably remove the oxygen and add nitrogen because that's not not harmful. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, the the people that are being experimented on. Are there sitting like at a desk or whatever, or they're doing some kind of simple exercise, and they slowly remove the oxygen out of the room? Well, when they do it slowly like this, it's an odd thing. It uh, it produces a kind of euphoria in the victim. They get giddy. They get happy. They don't see any threat to anything that's happening. They start to lose muscle coordination, and they start to lose um, the ability to think straight. And before you know it, they're sitting down, they're relaxed, they fall asleep, and then they die. Now, the experiments that I've seen, they don't actually kill the soldiers. But, uh, but the process, that would, that would be what happened if they continued the process. The, the, the victim, as they slowly lose oxygen, as long as they're able to breathe, as long as their lungs are moving and they're breathing in and out uh, with no oxygen in the air... They've replaced the oxygen with whatever the inert gas was. They slowly enter a stage of euphoria and then sort of laziness, and then they don't care, and they just relax, and they sit down, and they go to sleep, and the next stage is death. Well, that's what happens when the state slowly brings its evils upon people. They get lethargic, and they, and they enter a kind of euphoria, and then they get really dumbfounded, and then they die. And that's what happens, uh, that's how the state functions when it's, when it's in its tick mode, if we could put it that way. But on the other hand, if we can show people um, that there's actual fingers around their throat, if we can show people very quickly, this is what the state is, this is what it's doing, and this is the result of it, then all of a sudden, um, there's a market for liberty. All of a sudden, they want their air back. They realize the danger that they're sitting in. But if we help the state to make it more palatable, then it's like that case where the oxygen is slowly being removed. And that's an act of aggression. So fighting the state. Real quick as I wrap up here. The state relies on aggression, lies, theft. These are the weapons of the state. But our weapons are peace, truth, and voluntary exchange, the market. These are weapons that the state has no defense against. The state doesn't understand peace, truth, and voluntary exchange. Therefore, it has no defense against them. Battlefields. Now, if you think about the battlefields, think of the streets. When we go out into the street in uniform, uh, the state knows what to do. In other words, when the state sees a guy with a black thing wrapped around his face, waving a black flag in a black hoodie... 
the state knows exactly what to do with that guy. If, he, if the state sees a guy with a Gadsden flag in front of his house uh, or a big Confederate flag in front of his house, the state knows what to do with that guy. Because wearing a uniform and waving a flag is the battlefield of the state. Identifying yourself as the enemy of the state is exactly the way the state wants the battlefield to be run. How about activism as a weapon? Activism is a great weapon. But your appearance and your demeanor and your actions need to, need to seem harmless. Remember, a martyr is just a dead guy. He's not fighting any longer. So if the state sees you and recognizes you and, and, and acknowledges you as a threat, they will either slam you in prison or they will kill you. And either way, you're not fighting. If you're in prison, you're not fighting. If you're a martyr, you're not fighting. So we need to fight smart and let the supporters of the state fight the state. And they will. And the end. Well, the state's going to fall. And it will take a large segment of the population with it. Now, here's my crazy prediction. About a third of humanity, or maybe more, rely completely on the state. More than just for money. About a third of humanity, I believe, relies completely on the state. Now, so who comes out the other side of this mess when the state collapses? Well, keep in mind that there are almost 7 billion people in the world. And most of those 7 billion people function peaceably on a day-to-day -day basis with their neighbors. They work, they trade, they communicate. They're making their lives better every day without the state. There are only about 200 governments in the world. All of those governments are based on the aggression of the state. Only 200 governments and about 7 billion people. So how, how do we come out the other side of this mess? Well, when the hammer falls, you're going to be fine just as long as you're not under that hammer. As long as you're not part of the state, dependent upon the state, working with the state, relying upon the state, helping the state to be palatable, if you're not one of those people, well, there will be some, you know, there will be casualties. There always is. But the blunt of the casualties will be within those who support the state because the state, by its very nature, it will turn on its own. It will turn upon those people who depend upon it the most, and it will turn upon those people who support it the most. And that's what you see in a place like Anaheim right now, right now as this is being recorded on Friday, um, August 3rd, 2012. What you're seeing in places like Anaheim, what you're seeing in, in Europe, in different places in Europe, that's the state turning on itself. Don't be anywhere near that hammer. Get your families away from places like that. Separate yourself. Make yourself appear as harmless as possible and rely on things like peace, truth, voluntary exchange. And folks, for more on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to badquaker.com. Thank you very much for